Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Ontario's energy grid could once again be put to the test. We have new research on LRT construction's impact on housing affordability. Hamilton looks to Oshawa to help with our housing crisis. It is a day of mourning in London, Ontario today. Carmen's group has a new vision and two baby bald eagles now called the RBG home. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It was actually a black few days in August of 2003. Remember that? The massive blackout in Ontario. We are, believe it or not, just over two months away from marking the 20th anniversary of the 03 blackout. Do you remember where you were? August of 2003? August, I think it was what, 14th to 16th? I remember being at the radio station trying to make sense of what in the world is happening and uh, being out and about and and trying to keep people safe on the roads and in the community. It was certainly a a wild few days. And, And so now there's a new report out, again, a couple months before this anniversary, that suggests the province, our province, could be hit with generation and transmission outages for the foreseeable future. That doesn't sound very good. This suggestion comes from the North American Electric Reliability Corporation down in the States. Well, here to talk about it is Todd Smith. He is the energy minister here in Ontario and also the conservative MPP for Bay of Quinte. Todd, good morning. How are you today? Morning, Rick. How are you today? I'm good. Uh, The opposition is warning of potential brownouts or blackouts um, when, when reflecting on this report. Should Ontarians be concerned with our energy generation and and transmission and, and capacity? No, we've got lots of power, um, and uh, don't take my word for it. Take the system operator's word for it. The ISO, uh, the independent electricity system operator, uh, believes we have lots of fuel in the tank. And, uh, you know, we have about 2,900 megawatts, uh, our total capacity in Ontario right now, with uh, a number of our can-do reactors down for refurbishment. But even on a hot day like last Thursday, and you'll remember... Um, it was uh, pretty hot and sticky. Uh, we only hit 21,000 megawatts that day. So uh, we still had a lot of gas uh, back up. We were using our nuclear fleet to its full capacity. Uh, again, keeping in mind, there were a couple of can-do reactors down. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing about a day like Thursday, Rick, is that our renewables completely disappeared. Um, you know, wind was non-existent. We have over 4,000 megawatts of capacity there, but only 571 showed up, so about 14%. Um, our solar, same thing, 438 megawatts of capacity, only 186% showed up, so 40. So we really do rely on our nuclear fleet, our gas plants, and our hydroelectric fleet on days like last Thursday. When it comes to those renewables, we have some wildfires in Quebec that are certainly affecting us here in southern Ontario. What kind of impact is that playing on on that energy kind of renewable uh, that uh, that we rely on? Well, I don't know that the wildfires uh, specifically have uh, any impact on on our energy grid. Uh, What I can tell you is... um, you know, the other parties in the legislature, and and they're really the ones that are clutching their pearls uh, over the report that came out last week, unwarranted, really. They're they're the ones that want us to shut off our nuclear and gas plants. And if if we shut off our nuclear and gas plants, then we would have uh, serious problems in Ontario. Um, We're refurbing our uh, can-do plants at Darlington and uh, also at Bruce Power right now, um, four of them anyway. And then we've also extended our Pickering nuclear facility um, to the end of 2026. And we may potentially be refurbishing uh, Pickering as well, which is really great news because 
it's non-emitting electricity that you can count on to be there when you need it. You know, as I say, last Thursday, we had 8,400 megawatts of nuclear available to us, and we were using almost 8,400 megawatts um, on that day. So if it was up to the NDP or the Green Party or even the Liberals, um, you know, we would continue to see uh, intermittent, unreliable wind and solar put on the grid. And, and that really doesn't do us any good on a day like Thursday, which was a very, very hot, sticky day. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Todd Smith, Ontario's Energy Minister and the Conservative MPP for Bay of Quinte. And we're reflecting on this report from the North American Electric Reliability Corporation in the U.S. that shows that Ontario could be hit with generation and transmission outages for the foreseeable future. Mr. Smith obviously disagreeing with that. Is the report looking at a worst-case scenario? Well, what the report does, it actually puts anybody on the list that doesn't have more than 20% uh, capacity uh, above and beyond what uh, what they believe is necessary to meet the peak. Um, you know, we're at about 15% uh, of a buffer, I'll call it, over, over what we need. Um, and again, you know, that's with a couple of our, um, uh, actually four of our can-do reactors down for refurbishment. So, you know, one of those can-do reactors is set to come back in a few weeks, actually. OPG has done a, an incredible job at making sure that that can-do reactor has come in on budget and ahead of schedule, which is uh, great news as we look forward to more warm weather over the summer months. And really, you know, that's what that uh, report is is indicating. You know, the ISO says we have lots of fuel left in the tank, so to speak, particularly on our gas fleet to meet the demand. And we did have a couple of uh, gas plants that were down for refurbishment last week, you know, not expecting that it would be uh, quite as hot as it was uh, last week. So that was a bit of a surprise to have a day like that at the end of May or or early, early June. Uh, So we've got lots of megawatts available to us to ensure that we have the power that we need going forward. If we see a significant increase in demand this summer, let's just say, and I know this is hypothetical, but there's a you know massive heat wave, it stretches a couple of weeks, is, is there a chance we'll have to ask U.S. states or other provinces to share some of their uh, electricity? Or, or would we be in a position to import electricity from other places? Um, we, we would be in a position to do that, but the system operator doesn't believe that we will need to do so. And, and the great news is, is that, uh, you know, we've continued to invest in our system already to ensure that we have the power that we need. We've gone to competitive procurements, Rick, to acquire new um, uh, generation, unlike the previous government, which uh, had sole source contracts that were way over market. Uh, the price, you'll recall, 80 cents a kilowatt hour for solar in the early days. We've gone to a competitive procurements and we've seen a 30% savings on recontracting existing generators. We're moving forward on a competitive contract for battery energy storage facilities to make those renewables more efficient. So, you know, when the wind isn't blowing, at least, uh, you know, we'll have some of that wind power in the battery to dispatch at times during the peak periods in the late afternoon and early evening when we need the power. Same with the solar. Uh, Those battery energy storage facilities are being located right across the province. And of course, we're moving on Canada's first, uh, North America's first, the G7's first small modular nuclear reactor build over at Darlington as well, which is really going to uh, allow us to continue to uh, remove emissions from the system, but not just for us. This is something we're going to be able to export to other jurisdictions around the world, including some of the biggest polluters uh, in the world who are partners on this project at this point in time. There's a lot of really exciting things happening on the energy front. In our final 30 seconds, do you remember where you were during the blackout of 2003? 
as a matter of fact, I do. Uh, I was on a golf course in the Oak Hills in uh, Bay of Quinte, and uh, then I had to make my way very, very quickly into my radio studios, Rick. I used to be a broadcast journalist at Quinte Broadcasting in eastern Ontario and was the news director there for about uh, 14 years. So uh, much like you, I was sitting behind a microphone making sure that everybody remained as calm as they possibly could. Yeah, that was a tough job to do, that is for sure. Todd, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for uh, going down memory lane, and uh, and uh, thanks for uh, maintaining the energy grid in this province. I know it's a tough job. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for the time this morning. Todd Smith, Ontario Energy Minister, Conservative MPP for Bay of Quinty. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. L-R-T. And there's a new research project analyzing the impact that construction is having on housing affordability along the new transit corridor. And uh, it's called Experiencing Urban Change Along Hamilton's LRT Corridor, Resident Experiences Prior to Construction. What the people behind this looked at was uh, the, the urban changes that residents living along the corridor are experiencing even before shovels are in the ground. Brian Doucette is the Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion School of Planning at the University of Waterloo and is uh, one of the uh, main people behind this research project as we welcome him to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Brian, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. You've uh, listed some major findings with this research project. What did you uncover? Well, what we wanted to do was really understand, as you alluded to in the introduction, what was already happening before construction even started. And we often associate a new transit line with big construction cranes and a lot of change. Uh, And a lot of times this happens quite early in a process. And so we found that there was already a lot of changes that you would expect along a new transit line, um, even before the construction started. So we're seeing uh, prices going up, particularly for rental properties. We're seeing sort of land starting to get assembled for big developments. We're seeing people being displaced from from homes as as um, you know either homes are knocked down to make way for the line, or as the people who own those homes are trying to invest or try, trying to get more money out of them. So we're already seeing changes even before the construction has started. And amongst those big changes would be housing insecurity, uh, a distrust with the establishment, a.k.a. the city and Metrolinx, and some growing pains that are not only current, but into the future as well. Yeah, I think it's it's more that people don't really understand what's happening because the communication isn't always so clear. So it's less maybe framing it as, you know, distrusting the establishment and more people just need to know they want to know what's happening they want to know what kind of disruption is going to take place during the construction they want to know how they're going to be able to use the new system when it's open and there's a lot of things that just aren't always uh communicated i should point out too we to do this report we interviewed about 100 uh, people living along the lrt corridor so it's really based on interviews with people not a survey or or you know, statistical analysis. We really wanted to get people's own experiences with what was already happening. And that's where some of the issues of, you know, people kind of throwing their hands up and saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen on my street or, um, you know, on in, in my neighborhood. So the city, Metrolinx, need to do a better job of 
informing people of what's going to happen. And even if there are some unknowns, right, because this is a big project, there are going to be some unknowns. So stating that, you know, we might not, we don't know what is going to happen here, but this is the plan or this is the, the intention and, and um, just being a bit more open with, uh, with people. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Brian Doucette from the University of Waterloo, one of the driving forces behind this research project analyzing the impact LRT construction is having on this new transit corridor. This uh, this project also makes a handful of recommendations. Uh, what should this city and what should Metrolinx be doing? So one of the things that I think is, as a housing researcher that, that studies change along transit corridors, new transit corridors, um, one of the things that Hamilton needs to do is be much more proactive about how it shapes housing that gets built and and the housing um, situations along the LRT corridor. LRT corridors, transit corridors attract huge amounts of investment. We know this from other cities. We know this from where I am here in Kitchener-Waterloo. So if the question of what to build is left entirely to the market, what Hamilton's going to see is a lot of tall buildings, a lot of small condo units, most of which are bought by investors. So a lot of new housing along the LRT corridor, but not housing that is needed for those communities, right? There's housing and there's housing, right? You can put in a bunch of tall towers with tiny uh, condos, or you can do things differently and you can have housing that's more affordable, housing that's larger for families and all those sorts of things. Now, a city like Hamilton on, uh, you know, land that a developer owns, there's very little that they can do to really shape what gets built. Cities really don't have a whole lot of power. Where cities do have a lot of power to, to do things very creatively is on land that they own, on publicly owned land, on land that they can acquire. Then all of a sudden you open up a whole range of possibilities to do things very, very differently, to really build the kind of housing that, um, that communities need. Cities like Hamilton also have the power to uh, to do things like implement tougher anti-rent eviction bylaws. We had this discussion in Hamilton a couple months ago uh, that would help preserve the housing that already is affordable and help it being lost. So there are things, but the city needs to be very proactive and Metrolinx hopefully would be proactive too and use some of the land that it has acquired there uh, is to build this project. To, to keep it in public ownership and build the kind of housing the market is unwilling and unable to do. Yeah, there's a lot of heavy lifting. We know that. Brian, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for uh, chiming in on this research project and, and for undertaking this project. It's uh, a lot of great information here. Thank you very much. Brian Doucette is from the University of Waterloo. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Encampments, homelessness, housing affordability, the housing crisis that we and, and many other communities, quite frankly, are enduring or trying to solve. It is a complex puzzle with many different layers to this, but it's, it's really a 3D puzzle and it's hard to figure out. And uh, so, as, as you can imagine, you know, officials here, there, and everywhere are trying to determine w- what's the best course of action. Here in Hamilton, uh, it's investigating the merits of a program that is being offered in Oshawa, and you know it here as, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, the, the homeless registry, as it tries to address our city's housing crisis. Lisa McIntosh is the director of the region of Durham's Income, Employment, and Homelessness Supports Division, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Lisa, good morning. Welcome to the show. Morning. Thank you for having me. So what is Oshawa doing on the homelessness front and housing affordability front that Hamilton finds so intriguing? What's what's working in Oshawa? 
Well, um, uh, the way you're referring to it is the registry. We call it the by name list. And it's actually a by name list that's maintained for uh, homelessness programs across Durham region. So it's a Durham region um, program and that encompasses Oshawa and all of our uh, minis- lower tier municipalities. And so how does it work? So um, I guess to start with, uh, the region of Durham was invited to join the Built for Zero Canada campaign in July 2019. The region was just one of nine communities selected and the region then achieved a quality by name list by 2020. So the by name list is a way for us to know the people experiencing homelessness by name and prioritizing those vulnerable because that's really essential to ending homelessness in Durham. Durham's by name list is a real time and up to date list of people known to be experiencing homelessness in our community. The list contains key information about people experiencing homelessness that helps community agencies connect them to appropriate services. This information includes demographics, current housing state, housing history, personal history, and housing needs. So when someone has been homeless for 14 days and is unable to be diverted from shelter or unable to resolve their own homelessness, our partner access points begin to process and add the person to the by name list. So to be added to the by name list, the access point must then ensure that all the relevant client information is updated on a shared information system. It's used by all funded partners in our system and it's called HIFAS. And so- A signed consent form must be completed to add someone to the by name list. So so, it is a choice. And so when someone's on this list, where do they end up going? Well, the list, because they're in a shared information system, all of our funded housing and homelessness agencies have access to that information. The person doesn't need to tell their story every time they walk through a new door. Or if across our geography, if somebody moves from east to west or north to south, the agencies involved are still able to access their information and to support the person to the best of their ability. It's a way that that we can relate and understand people who are experiencing homelessness in Durham and actually be able to call them by name and understand part of their story when we work with them. And so is this program helping uh, take those individuals and putting them into more secure housing? Ultimately, is this program working? The program is working for us to be able to offer a coordinated access system and support people to move along the continuum from unsheltered into various types of housing, whether that be supportive, transitional, or um, stable and long-term housing. There is uh, an example in uh, Durham region of a, 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 ta- a, a tiny house or tiny housing project. Uh, is that making an impact as well? Our um, Oshawa Microhomes is a transitional housing program and it's designed to provide assistance and support to people with the goal of moving them to an independent unit within four years because it is transitional housing. So supports are provided based on what program participants identify as a concern, and they may include physical or mental health, substance use, life skills, community connections, education, volunteering, or employment supports. It's all individualized, 
And pro, uh, program participants have a choice in terms of what services they receive and must complete uh, to support their action plans. We got 30 seconds. Do you, do you feel that these programs have made a dent in the homelessness issue in your community? Homelessness is a nationwide complex and large um, issue. We are all going to be working for a really long time to support it. And the new funding this year from the province has been a great starting point to move that along. And we're looking forward to working with our federal and provincial partners um, more extensively in the coming years and months. Lisa, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time today and, and sharing some information on what is happening in Durham Region. Thank you very much. Lisa McIntosh, the Director of the Region of Durham's uh, Income, Employment and Homelessness Supports Division, as uh, our city looks to that region and, and Oshawa in particular in terms of how to address our uh, homelessness and, and housing crisis in this community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today marks the two-year anniversary of the terror attack in London, Ontario that claimed the lives of four members of a Muslim family, Salman Afsal, his wife, their 15-year-old daughter, her 74-year-old grandmother were run down by a pickup truck on this day two years ago, June 6, 2021. And the couple's nine-year-old son, you will recall, was seriously hurt. Uh, prosecutors allege the attack was an act of terrorism targeting Muslims, and the accused is set to stand trial in September on four counts of first-degree murder and one of attempted murder. On this day, we reflect with Fatima Abdallah, the communications coordinator with the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Fatima, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Thank you for having us. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. What are you reflecting on today on this anniversary? Well, there's, there's a lot to remember. Today is today is mostly about remember, remembrance, and for the last two years, we've We've been working on on calls for action, uh, so it's important that today and and on and, and on days like this, uh, we step back and, and just remember what we're doing this for and what we're fighting for and what we're pushing back for. Um, the events of June 6 are still very raw for the Muslim community. Uh, it, it's important to realize that this was just two years ago, right? Uh, and two years isn't isn't 10 years from now. It's not 15 years from now. It's, it was just two years ago. Uh, this is still very raw for the community, and 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 Muslims uh, are still in that in that feeling of uh, now that we're out in, in the public, we're no longer uh, stuck at our homes during COVID. Uh, we're we're mostly in public spaces. Uh, people are still uh, very much worried about about their safety, and 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 they're looking over their shoulders. Um, and, and that's where we are today, and 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 that's what we need to reflect on. Uh, and and the larger society. Uh, Every single person, uh, regardless of their faith and their identity, uh, needs to reflect on today. We spoke to you on the show a year ago today on on the one-year anniversary of this uh, heinous incident. And you mentioned at that time there were calls for action, and you just mentioned it just a minute ago. What progress Mm -hmm. is being made on those calls for action? Yeah, so uh, if, if many of you may recall... So when when the attack happened in 2021, and CCM and, and London uh, and the London Muslim community uh, called for a national action summit against Islamophobia, and within the national action summit against Islamophobia, we launched uh, approximately 61 policy recommendations, um, which which uh, reflect a whole of government approach for for the federal, provincial, and municipal levels of government. Um, we've seen a number uh, of our policy recommendations committed to in the last. Few years uh, in the last two years, 
specifically federally, we've, we've seen the win of uh, uh, the, the the launch of the special rep- the office of the special representative on Islamophobia. Uh, we've seen uh, very recently a commitment to to increase security infrastructure program uh, funding to, to protect our places of worship and institutions. Um, and in budget 2023, uh, we've we've seen commitments to CBSA oversight bodies and, and much much more. Um, but what we do need to to continue to push for is, is to see movement on the national action plan against hate, uh, which would include better laws for for hate crime legislation, uh, online harm legislation, uh, as well as uh, victims of hate support funds. So, just, so what the government is now calling the survivors of hate support fund. Um, provincially, we've seen uh, the Ontario government very recently commit to uh, security grants for places of worship, uh, which is uh, in, in conjunction with the federal grant. Uh, so that way places of worship have, have two places to lean on uh, and not just one. Um, we've also seen the, the Ontario government uh, commit to um, a pilot public education campaign, uh, which, which will launch in London. Uh, and and uh, depending on, on how that goes, uh, spread throughout uh, the rest of Ontario. Um, we've seen commitments of, of anti-racism, uh, community and, and, and racism legislation um, in, in, in BC, in, in Alberta, in, in Nova Scotia, and, and, and other places across the country as well. Uh, so there's a, there's a large movement here, and, and people are, are seeing the need uh, for, for this sort of legislation and, and are committing to it. Uh, but, but now we just need to collectively work together to, to, to see this through the finish line. Um, and, 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 and there's so much more that, that we can push for. Well, it's nice to see at least a few of these 61 policy recommendations are being put into action. As, as you can probably attest, more needs to be done uh, and, and more will be done. And, uh, you know, it'll be, uh, I think, uh, a, a good space later this evening when the vigil is held to gather the community together to, you know, put another step forward to stamping out hate. Fatima, thanks for spending some time yeah. with us this morning and uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. Fatima Abdallah is with the National Council of Canadian Muslims. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I had the pleasure of attending a uh, super cool event at the Hamilton Convention Center where Carmen's Group unveiled its uh, new brand identity and introduced the company's new vision for the future. And I caught up with uh, Carmen's Group CEO PJ Mercanti last night to talk about Carmen's future as well as its past. Lots to unpack here. We've got a new logo, we have a new vision, we have a, an amazing story to tell. What's the biggest message you want to get across to Hamiltonians? Uh, we want to share with Hamilton that the next chapter is beginning and we've got an exciting future ahead for both Carmen's Group and our many initiatives uh, including Mami Yolanda's Lasagna, the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group and so we're excited to turn the page, look forward to that next chapter, and uh, get to work and doing great things for the city of Hamilton and for the people of Hamilton. you got so many things going on. It clearly takes a team to make this motor running. Just talk about that and, and, and what makes this Hamilton? So we're proud of the team that we've assembled with the Carmen's Group. Uh, we've got some world-class professionals that come from first-class brands such as Fairmont, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, uh, Dare Foods, and the new executive team of the Carmen's Group will take us to that next level. They've got an impressive pedigree. They're Hamiltonians, and, and many of them have been in Hamilton, but have worked 
with world-class brands and organizations and they're bringing their talents to our organization, to our city, to our projects, to our brands. And so the quality of the team today is unparalleled relative to anything we've had in the past. And so we're excited to have the team get to work doing what they do best, which is delivering great experiences for Hamiltonian and making projects come to life. Can you have imagined at the start of the pandemic, fast forward to tonight and knowing what we know now, could you have imagined this happening three years ago? I, I, I couldn't have imagined it. I hoped for it. But obviously, in the midst of the pandemic and all the lockdowns and restrictions, there were a lot of dark days for everybody in the hospitality and event industry and across the city as a whole. Uh, but to be where we are, to have come out of the pandemic, to have endured what we endured through it, uh, is, a, is a wonderful, it's wonderful to be where we're at. And we're looking forward to the next chapter. The pandemic... Uh, demonstrated the resilience of the team and it showed that uh, that there's a lot of grit and passion within our team uh, and within the city and we're excited for that next chapter. It had a very inspirational speech and one part of it was, and I think the phrasing was, pandemic-proof verticals. What do you mean by that and how is this going to take the company forward? So. When the pandemic hit, a lot of our a lot of our businesses, obviously being in events and hospitality, were shut down. But the elements of the business that remained vibrant were those in food production and in providing uh, accommodations. We our, our hotel was converted to provide for residency for for students of different uh, in educational institutions. Uh, we had a partnership with City Housing Hamilton and other organizations uh, like them. And so we wanted to make sure that we set up the organization uh, with some new verticals where if another pandemic was to hit we would be insulated and we would be prepared and 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 who knows the next time uh you know a covid may come but we want to make sure that when that happens uh, our food production businesses our development businesses are thriving and vibrant we recently partnered with my father's retirement project his lasagna business and we're happy to share that by the end of the summer early fall mommy olanda's gourmet lasagna will be in over 300 uh, retail outlets across Ontario. We just got approved uh, with a second shift uh, from the CFIA, so we're looking forward to, to ramping production to accommodate that. But the lasagna business was one during the pandemic that was thriving. And so we realized we want more of that. And we're used to making great food and have a lot of signature products that we're looking forward to bringing to market. And then on the development side, we're looking forward to leaning in on new development opportunities and and spreading our wings with regards to city building initiatives including residential and commercial developments and tonight was telling that story about the new Carmen's group the the, the projects of the future and making sure that um, if another pandemic was to hit that our company will be in a better position to respond to it how much bigger how much better how much more amazing can you guys be because I mean, we're talking about First Ontario Centre Renovations, Convention Centre, First Ontario Concert Hall, list goes on and on. This is an exciting future. It is an exciting future and, and, and we're excited for all of Hamiltonians, for our children, for that next generation. You know, what we're doing right now is, uh, is setting the city up for future success. And uh, there's a line that, uh, that I recently heard that sometimes messy precedes the masterpiece. And, you know, when you look at any construction site, any art studio, any operating room, sometimes it gets messier before it gets prettier. And so we're committed to the long game. We're committed to making sure that, that we have a, a future Hamilton that's, that, um, that we're all proud of. Uh, and we know that it's short-term pain for long-term gain. 
Carmen's group, our projects, we're in it for the long term, and we know that our city's uh, best days are ahead of us. You also referenced when you and Joe were kids. Could you have ever imagined being here tonight celebrating all the success that your grandparents had, your parents had, now you guys are having? Uh, you know, we're humbled by the history of our family, and I, I could have never imagined that Joe and I would be in the position that we're in. Our sister Danielle is now working with us with the lasagna business, and so we're, we're beyond grateful and humbled, but we recognize that we have a responsibility too. We have a responsibility to our team, to our family, to the many people that rely on Carmen's group uh, for their living, and, and we recognize we have a responsibility to the city of Hamilton and to, to the taxpayers of Hamilton, and so we want to do Hamilton proud, um, and, uh, and so we, we, we thank Hamilton for the faith that they've put into our brands and our family over the years. And we intend to, to make the entire city proud with the projects that we're endeavoring upon. Talked a lot about uh, the success and, and, and rightfully so, but are there any challenges that you're looking forward to tackling in the future here? Uh, well, there's always challenges from the perspective of, you know, the market's always evolving, uh, the, winds, uh, the winds of the world change, and so you always need to be nimble and pivot as things happen, and, you know, being in business and, uh, and driving community projects forward, it's, it's the long game, and so you're going to endure, um, you, know, the, 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 you know, the various um, challenges of evolution, and, and so, so we're committed to learning, we're committed to doing things better, and, uh, and so we're looking forward to, to making sure that we step forward into the future with a fresh foot and a fresh vision and a perspective and an open mind and heart to, to be the best that we can. And yeah. Always appreciate the time, best of luck going forward, and thanks for your time. Oh, thanks, Rick. DJ Mercanti, CEO, Carmen's Group. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hey, pretty cool news out of the Royal Botanical Gardens. It has two new baby bald eagles. And just as exciting, they want you to help them pick their names. You can do so by going online to rbg.ca forward slash Bald Eagles. Tice, Tice Meyer is the head of natural lands at the Royal Botanical Gardens and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tice, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Good morning. You got a couple of baby bald eagles. When did you first realize these two babies were, were at the RBG? Well, when, when did we realize? I would say last week of March, maybe first week of April, somewhere in there. Is... So, yeah, we've been watching them for, for a while and you it's just what do we have, and turns out we have two. Is this a rare occurrence? Do, do eagles usually nest at the RBG and, and, and have babies? Uh, well, for a long time it was just not a thing, but starting 10 years ago there was uh, a pair that set up shop, and this this is basically the 10th anniversary for little eaglets every spring. Wow. So where are they? Can you say where they are? I can this year. Um, sometimes they uh, hide themselves away, but <laughs> they've picked the spot in a big tree right beside uh, one of our lovely nature trail boardwalks called the Marsh Walk. And so you can go for a stroll. I mean, it's, they're still far away, but they're big, and uh, and you can see them. I would imagine that Mama Eagle isn't too far away at all times. Is there any danger for people to try to catch a glimpse of these baby bald eagles? There is no danger whatsoever. No, Mom's. Yep, mom and dad are always there, back and forth, back and forth. Um, but I would, what would I say? That, uh, from the boardwalk to the tree they're in, it's about 1,000 feet, and then the tree itself is about 120 feet tall. So 
There's a good distance between you and the tree. Yeah. Birds. So what do these birds look like? Well, the young ones, they, I would, at this point, already now, they're, what, two and a half months old, they look about like bald eagles, other than they're all brown instead of sort of dark brown with white heads with a little bit of white modeling on them. So they look like um, sort of ratty, just got out of bed, bald eagles. <laughs> so they look like teenagers. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how much longer they expect to be in the nest? Like, what, when do they leave the nest and, and uh, fly the uh, the smoky skies, so to speak? That's right, yeah. Um, I would say it's about two weeks. And they test their wings for their first flight. They're starting to flex them and hop up and down in the nest. Um, so it's, it's, we're thinking it'll be about the first day of summer, so June 21st, and they'll take a, take a run off the nest. They'll just loop around a bit and come back and do a little wobbling in the air. But uh, first flight, first day of summer. Tice Tysmeyer is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tice is the head of Natural Lands at the Royal Botanical Gardens, and they have a couple of uh, two new baby bald eagles uh, in the RBG. And uh, they also want you to help pick their names. Before we get to that, how much longer are these two baby eagles expected to stay in the RBG? Because eventually they're going to want to, you know, leave the house and, and you know, uh, fend for themselves somewhere else. Yeah, that's right. Yep, they, they do like to hang around home for a while, and the parents put up with them. So um, usually they stay at at the nest until, let's say, late August, and then the parents just kick them right out and say, you're done for this year. <laughs> Are they expected to hang around the RBG, or do they go far away? First year, they pretty much stay there until, we'll say, winter. And then you never know where they might end up with. So, so some of the other past years, eagles tend to be around as well. Interesting stuff. All right, let's talk about the, the, the naming. I'm not sure if it's called, being called a contest, but the, 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 the naming opportunity that people have. How does this work? Right. It is a bit of a contest. Okay. So far, we've had more than 700 people submit their, their thoughts on names. So we're running for a couple weeks on this. Um, basically, we, got, we have two eagles. We don't know if they're girls or boys. There's two, two little eaglets there, and in the 10th anniversary, let's throw some names out there. So pick your two, and uh, in the end, we'll we'll see what we end up with. So are you guys looking for unique suggestions, something just uh, crazy, or, uh, I don't know, more more traditional? What kind of names do you think are going to really catch the attention of those who are ultimately going to pick the two winners? That's, that's a bit of a fun question there, isn't <laughs> it? Um, I, I'm feeling it'll be something unique that, that takes the day on this one. Yeah, I, I would agree on that. And when's the deadline to get your, uh, naming suggestions in? Um, that's a good question. I think it's the end of next week. Okay. Well, that's fast approaching. Tice, appreciate the time. Best of luck with this. And, uh, we'll be watching these, uh, two baby bald eagles. Thank you very much. Tice Tysmeyer is the head of Natural Lands at the RBG. Contest runs... Uh, until June the 15th. Looks like the winning name is going to be announced June 16th. And uh, you can go to rbg.ca forward slash bald eagles to offer your suggestions on what two names you think these eagles should have. And there's going to be two winners, one name for each eaglet, as they're called. Uh, and they'll be given a free one-year RBG membership. So you get something out of just not not just being able to say, hey, I named one or both. 
of the Baby Bald Eagles at the RBG also got a one-year membership to the RBG, which is kind of cool. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.